coming up on the Front Page Football Podcast. Another Women's World Cup podcast. We've got Cody Ajada. We've got Matt Olsen dissecting the second week of the tournament. Not much else for me to add on that. All I will say is that we've also had two other pods go up this week. We had an interview earlier this week with Nikolai Topol-Stanley. And yesterday, we had an interview with Mitch Duke um, go up on the podcast network as well. So it's, it's all been kicking off uh, on this platform. Um, and this is our third pod for the week. So make sure if you haven't already, maybe just file it away. Um, get to it when you can because uh, the two interviews with Nikolai and Mitch were both very, very fascinating uh, interviews indeed. But for now, it's Cody and Matt. It's the Women's World Cup and that is the focus and we'll be back with it right after this. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Front Page Football Podcast, a special edition of the Front Page Football Podcast, a special World Cup episode. It is your favorite duo, Cody Ojeda and Matt Olson. Matt, one, how are you today? And two, how has your World Cup experience been thus far? Well, um, uh, let me just say today, today's been uh, hectic as every day of the competition has been. It's the rest day, but I, I hold another job uh, like we all do here at Front Page Football. Um, and you know, balancing coming back to work from my World Cup leave because I had some had some leave sitting around for the World Cup. I came back in, yeah, that was that was fun. Um, you know, we 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 like a bit of uh, a, a bit of a relevant chatter here, we don't we, Cody? But um, the World Cup experience. Let's let's just say I've I've taken in every game in Perth. I've gone and seen this uh, this Matildas win against Canada. We both did. Uh, we were both there, and and now I'm going over to Brisbane for a quarter final, a quarter final that either the Matildas or, of course. Uh, Denmark will be playing at. So really looking forward to taking it in one last time uh, and to witness history in that quarterfinal, hopefully. you think Perth have been a bit hard done by not getting a finals game at all? or No, no. Hmm? I, I think that um, when you consider that there are teams in this tournament playing as far east um, as, uh, you know, Wellington, um, and Auckland and, and places like that. Look, there probably just would have been way too much of a logistical challenge going on to get to get those girls to travel all the way up to Perth. Obviously, not that a team would travel all the way from New Zealand to Perth, but what I'm what I'm saying in with that is consider that you know Denmark are the only team left with a camp in Perth, and um, you know the draw dynamics at play and where other teams are traveling from. Like I get it. It's it's actually a really really big long trip that a lot of teams wouldn't have had to have made. I also just feel that. Um, you know, Adelaide is a better football stadium anyway for that round of sixteen game that they did get, and France Morocco. It's is it is it is it a really big fixture? Look, I don't know. But, well, France um, are a big yeah. team. Morocco are well supported. Are you, well, it'll well, be a big just, game. We've just seen them. Yeah, we've we've just seen them last night. Uh, sorry. Well, you know, whenever this comes out, it'll be uh, it'll be Saturday morning, won't it? So we've seen them on Thursday night, and um, we've we've literally just seen the. Best, single best moment in the history of Moroccan women's football, right, in WA. So did we need more of it? <laughs> did we need to see them lose to France? I don't know. <laughs> to be fair, if you're going to end hosting a World Cup, that's probably one of the best ways you could ask for. And like you said, we do have, or you will have that um, experience at the quarterfinal, whether it be your country, Australia, or your country of origin, Denmark. Yeah. It's still going to be something very, very beautiful to celebrate. And I will be at that game too. I've been to too many games. I've almost run myself ragged with um 
illness going around. Um, I'm coming, coming to Brisbane. I'll be I'll be in Brisbane, yeah. Oh, Cody, yes, I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> I was in Brisbane for the Nigeria game too. Yes, sweet. What are we What are we What are we doing in Bris Vegas? The, the I don't know. Game? Apparently, um, Claxton Street's the place to be. I did walk into a bar after the um Nigeria game, which we will get into in a minute. But um, thought I'd try and drown my sorrows with half a um alcoholic beverage. I am not one to drink alcohol, but anyway, you guys don't want to hear about my drinking habits, and I'm sure you don't want to hear about mine and Matt's um. Holidays together, or you might, but we can talk about that another time. We are here to talk about that game that I did go and watch, and unfortunately, actually, no, I did kind of enjoy it. Australia and Nigeria, Australia and Canada as well, we'll get onto, but talking about Australia's group stage performances altogether, mm. would you say you're happy with it? What's your overall assessment with it? Because there's been some very, very good highs, but there's also been some lows in there as well. Yeah, the. <laughs> It's tough in that, in that there's been a lot of really contrasting performances. I think the Canada game on its own, exactly what we needed to see from Australia in this tournament. Let me, let me pose this to you, right? Cody, we've, we've never won uh, a group at the Women's World Cup, which, you know, for a country of our stature, you know, for the situation that played out in 2019, where we realistically should have won the group, for that similar dynamic where we've only gotten six points in the group to happen again, I'd actually go as far as to say it is a disappointment. Take a lot of what happened in the Nigeria game in isolation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the Matildas have still performed well, but I still, that they still, you know, they, their expectation was seven points, nine points to comfortably top the group. And they didn't actually, they didn't actually do that. Okay. You know, a lot of weird stuff happened, especially with Nigeria's performance. I understand that. And especially Nigeria's performance against the Matildas, but look, it's still a disappointment. It still has to be considered a disappointment. And we can't really escape, um, you know, the, the facts and the knowledge of that because even the island game, um, wasn't that good, was it? I mean, it, it wasn't the, the, this isn't the Matildas we wanted to see at this tournament. And I'm not saying that because Sam Kerr's not the team. I'm saying that because they're, they're not the sort of dominant you know, amazing team that we've expected to see across three games. So you could take the, listen, listen, you could take the, the Nigeria game in isolation, right? But, but the same, the same thing extends to the Canadian game, right? What if happened, what if what happened in Melbourne was just an isolated incident and not the norm? It's, it's, it's a tough one. Now, disappointment. That's, that's a, do you think that's a little bit harsh? Cause yeah, I know you said, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it could, it could very well be considered quite harsh to say it's a disappointment. Look, I know you but, said we, we didn't get the, well, look, we only finished with six points. To say only, I understand it is a group that we probably should have not lost in. I, I understand that part, mm. but the goal was to finish top of the group. We did do that. Did we do it the way we wanted to? Probably not. And I understand where there's probably a bit of frustration and we can say maybe we slightly fell short of expectations there, but we did end up achieving what we set out to achieve. And it doesn't matter what's happening in the groups now because at the end of the day, we've now topped our group. We're going down the side of the tree that we would have if we were topped our group anyway, whether it was with yeah. six, seven, nine points. So I don't know if disappointment is the right thing. And I look, I'm, we're only five minutes into the pod and I'm already challenging you on something. So we're in for a good, uh, good hour. No, I mean, I look, 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 let me just, let me just clarify this. Um, we don't want another Phoenix gate, right? So I am just, <laughs> I am, I am using historical precedence as a metric. And I understand how absurd that is because, because you judge them in the, in the hearing now and you judge them on what's happened. But honestly, Cody, let me also say that on top of that precedent comes the fact that the island game wasn't that good. The Nigeria game really wasn't good, right? So yeah, the Canada game happened, but the fact that that's only one of three games where we actually saw the Matildas that we know we can see 
tell me that that by like like that's not it's not good it's not see it's I, not I see what you top of what we really want to see these girls perform at. I see what you meant before when you say we got we can't take the Nigeria game in isolation because then we should probably take the Canada game in isolation as well. I hundred percent agree with you on that. But even if you put all three games together, there's very very good parts of all three games. There's very bad parts of all three games. You look at the Canada game as well. We won four nil, and it may have played in our favor. What I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. We didn't exactly have a lot of the ball, and Canada were probably the ones that were probably saw more of the ball, had more of the chances. We were just very very clinical, and the way we set up kind of almost played into taking advantage of that in a way. Um, look, I don't necessarily agree. I think it actually was a a, a very very good clinical performance. Oh, it was a great clinical performance, but there's still that negative negative side of it that you can kind of look into and go, okay. No, well, but, but here's why I'm, I'm counteracting that it's wrong, right? Okay. Because they've they've actually found a way to do exactly what's required in that situation, right? I don't necessarily now, look, Canada have had a whole myriad of issues going on, um, and I, I want to sort of touch on that because there's something that's come out um, from the CBC recently that I, I would really like to talk about, but um Look, if you if you play that game quite a few times over, I think Canada are probably more expected to be on top of proceedings for, for periods of it anyway, right? And similar to a dynamic that we'll also talk about with Japan, I think we're in a position where, given that Australia were there to sort of show up when it mattered and sort of dictate uh, dictate terms by way of not being on top of the proceedings, the fact that they weren't on top of those proceedings and the fact that they put in exactly what was required and scored four goals... You know, I think that that's exactly what we needed to see, you know? It's interesting as well because I will say, yeah, we didn't see a lot of the ball. I also do hold the belief that Australia does play better when we see less of the ball. As we saw in the Nigerian Island games, I think we do kind of struggle to break teams down when we are seeing more of it, when they are kind of sitting back there, sitting with that low block. We do struggle to break teams like that down. And you mentioned before we haven't had Sam Kerr. That probably hasn't played in our favour. And I don't know if we've 100% answered the question of, how do we score goals without her? You look at the Ireland game, we got a penalty. Nigeria game, there was a set piece. Van Egmont um, came up with a goal as well. But you're talking one got one goal from open play in the space of 180 minutes, maybe a little bit longer because there was a lot of injury time in that Nigeria game. You go to the Canada game, and it's a game that does probably suit our style of play a little bit more or what we can achieve from this team. So it wasn't necessarily we found an answer without Sam Kerr. We just had a game that suited the players that were going to be on that pitch. Hayley Razzo, she's very good in transition. Caitlin Ford, back in a natural position, very good in transition. We had aspects like that that were playing into our favour. So I don't know if it's necessarily a thing of, oh, yeah, Sam Kerr, no Sam Kerr, we're going to do well. It was just the type of game that suited us in a way. Is that what you think as well? Yeah, yeah. And that's more or less what I'm trying to touch on, is just that um, the terms were there to be dictated and they were dictated um, you know, to the letter of the law, <laughs> whatever that re- think, realistically means. One thing, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, look, and one thing that I think we do need to kind of take into account as well is after the Nigeria game, the backlash that this side got from it, the way this, the Matilda's name was kind of ran through the media as well, and maybe not from media person, media types like us, more from maybe the fan side of things, or fans on social media, there was a lot of distaste in this team and a lot of worries that we weren't going to get out of the group at all. So to bounce back in the way they did is the exact reaction that we needed for fans to kind of go, okay, yep, this is a side capable of doing well. It brought faith back into the fans. Faith was restored in this side, and suddenly we're back on the bandwagon going, oh, yeah, we're going to win this tournament. 
considering what happened in the Nigeria game, you can only credit the mental fortitude and the environment that Tony's created because a lot of other sides may have crumbled after a result like that and a reaction like that too. Yeah, look, I actually think they were always, you know, we have this weird thing in Australian football where soccer is Matilda's. We always just find a way. <laughs> we always, we always find a way. There's always that Aussie DNA, Aussie DNA, Aussie DNA. Right when we need it, and I think there was always the the you know the card of of we're going to just bring Sam Kerr out and we're going to you know talk about Sam um, by way of of her, the idea of her presence just being something that totally boosted the the team to to go out and play well, and they did. Uh, so much so that she didn't even really need to come on, even if she was fit to play. And I think that the news of her being fit to play sparked everyone up. So even from a fan perspective, we became confident. Even from a media perspective, we knew there were some games going on, but they were games that were, were going to help that camp. Uh, for them to come out and smash four goals, the thing for me, Cody, right? And I kind I kind of stand by it in in a game like this in tournament football. You know, you need to come out early. You need to come out early and make that impact to set the tempo for the game. It's something New Zealand did very well when they beat Norway on opening night, and it's something that the Matildas did at the very last moment that was clinical. Um, and actually, you know, as an, a relevant uh, sort of side point, um, New Zealand actually did kind of step up again in that Switzerland game. They just got really unlucky. Um, but yeah, for, for the Matildas to do it in the way that they did do it, um, you know, Hayley Razzo stepping up and, and sort of scoring and then the offside and all what's going on. I, you know, Amy Harrison said on Optus Sport that it, it could have rattled them, uh, but it didn't anymore because they were just they were just that focused on on what they did need to do and what exactly was required. And 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 a lot of that mentality came from sort of what we were talking about beforehand, all all the stuff that went on beforehand, and that's what made a winning performance. That's what made a clinical performance, and and that's what just made um made Australia really happy to to see this team succeeding again. As for topping the group. To go back on what we were saying before, I think it's a different conversation. I think I think you can still look at this group and take a lot of negatives from it, um, as you would in any situation, because yeah, they, they did, uh, you know, they hardly put in a, a, a decent performance prior to that, and I don't think that that's a harsh thing to say. Maybe yeah, describing the overall package as a disappointment doesn't really make much much sense, but I still think that the Canada game was was really buoyed by other things that the other two games couldn't have been, and when you look at it in relation to a round of 16 game or a quarter final, you know, you do have to wonder, we can't just sort of, you know, we can't just produce the same trick again and, and have the magic out there on the pitch, right? So, you know, the lead up in that and what happens in the lead up will be really important. And that's uh, that's something that, that makes or breaks football games like this. It, it does. We, we can see here and say it doesn't, but it's a World Cup. It's a home World Cup. Of course, what goes on, uh, you know, externally is, is going to be a factor. You mentioned Sam Kerr in there, and I think one thing that's kind of annoyed me in mainly mainstream media is that this does kind of look like the Sam Kerr show, and the moment she wasn't there, things kind of went on his head, and it's like, oh, where's Sam Kerr? Is Sam Kerr going to play? Is she draining? Yada, yada, yada. There's so much more to like about this team, and one of the players you mentioned as well that hopefully Australia is starting to get on the bandwagon for is Hayley Rasso. Now, she was someone leading to this game by probably in that camp that I thought wasn't playing her best football. I'll put I'll put it in that way. But the way she came out in that Canada game, I think that's synonymous with how this side has reacted because she came and she went, yep, I'm going to take this game. I'm going to take this game on. I'm going to lead this team. I'm going to spearhead us to a result. And she did it in perfect fashion. And I'm glad her story is kind of being told as well by a lot of people in the media now as well, where she did have that significant injury back in 2019. She's come back, gotten a move to Europe. Now she's goal scorer, won Australia game almost single-handedly at a World Cup. It's almost a bit of a full circle moment, but 
Is there anyone else, in your opinion, that's kind of caught the eye as well? From a Matilda's perspective, From a Matilda's let me really, yeah, let me really think it through. Look, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say that Van Egmond, um, having to sort of step up and play an unnatural role or a role, a role that she hadn't played for the national team in a while. Let's put it, let's put it that far. Um, you know, for her to sort of step up and, and play particularly sort of well in the early stages of that Nigeria game anyway. Um, that's really important because they needed someone who could actually, now the, the, the trouble was, I think you had, you had Ford playing out of position. You had Fowler who, who sort of had a fair share of problems until she's actually gone and scored against Canada. There were other people who, from an attacking sense, were really, you know, struggling to, to buy into that and, and, um, you know, step up where Sam's shoes needed to be filled. And I think Van Egmond did that to the best of her ability. I, I think that's fair anyway, Cody. Would you, would you say so? Oh, 100%. And considering she probably wasn't a lot of people's first choice to kind of replace Sam or replace Mary Fowler more in right. that role after uh, Mary Fowler's injury, I think a lot of people were hoping Chidiak would go straight in the starting lineup. People saw Van Egmond's name on the team sheet and went, oh, okay, why is she starting? But she kind of put those fears or doubts to, um, that really, really quickly because she came on and she was the one, she was probably one of our better plays, particularly in that first half against Nigeria. Everything was kind of going through her. She was probably the one most suited to that crossing game we were trying to play, even though I vehemently disagree with trying to play like that with, with this Matilda side without Sam Kerr. But she, she came into that game. She did that role she needed to. She did it quite well. I think another one that deserves a lot of credit and it's probably not the person who's was everyone's starting choice leading into the tournament, or maybe I'm just severely underrating her, but Claire Hunt. You've got two centre-backs there in Alana Kennedy and Claire Polkinghorne, who are very much veterans of the game. Suddenly, this young centre-back, who's only just made her debut, comes into the side, and right now, she looks indispensable. And when you're pushing someone like Claire Polkinghorne to the bench, that is no small feat, and I think she deserves a hell of of a lot of credit for that and for what she's been able to produce in this tournament in such a short amount of time in her national team career. But we'll move on. There is a game to look forward to against Denmark. Now, we say the Matildas probably haven't looked that great in the group stage. I don't think Denmark have, have looked all that crash hot either. They did. They're coming back off a 2-0 win against Haiti, who did kind of impress me during this tournament. I've They've kind of became my third team for a little bit. Dumone is someone who I've been banging the drum on for a very for a very long time during this tournament. They did have that win over China in the first round, although that was quite an even game in my opinion, and then that 1-0 lost England in the middle of it. So their results probably on paper look better than what the Matildas have been doing so far, but I don't think the performances quite match as well. Do, do you think, who do you think has the ascendancy going at this game? I know that, look, they're both coming off wins, they're both coming off good wins, but I still think there's more about the Matildas leading into this game than what there is for Denmark. I look, I think, <laughs> It's a funny one in that, you know, Denmark, I've, I've obviously I've watched a lot of, I've, I've seen them play twice. And um, there's a really interesting dynamic going on where I think they're trying to formulate a few things that, that weren't working initially in the final third. Um, and so I think from a, a goals perspective, there might be a lot to question there. You know, Pernil Harder is a world-class player, but her system in the Danish team, for whatever reason, I don't know enough about Sundergaard's particular choices that he's trying to implement but what i find so inherently fascinating is the fact that she's this gun player who you know she's not actually had the one defined role um for for whatever reason um in 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 that that attacking um you know position of the pitch with regards to how that's counteracted defensively we know with the matildas that it can be 
a bit of an issue and that with the rise of Claire Hunt, as you mentioned earlier, there is a lot of that same sort of rotation and a lot of combinations that Tony's tried. So it's so fascinating to me. that, And again, you know, I, I like to say that that's the area of the pitch we want to look out for in this game is Denmark's final third, where they're going to get the goal from, you know, will it be from a set piece? How will, um, you know, play be dictated with a lot of the rotation of the players that can be a bigger threat? I'm thinking especially of Emily Vansgaard. She has been one player that I've really, really, really enjoyed watching in person and seeing her game, seeing her push her game to another level, stepping up um, when other players couldn't. And um, for me, that's the thing to look out for in the game. As far as your actual question of ascendancy and the and the the sort of, uh, you know, the way... Maybe momentum was a better up. word. Maybe momentum maybe, maybe yeah, maybe, yeah. But I think the, what you're still trying to ask is the way that these teams have built built up in uh, in the football that they're playing. And I think, again, it's a funny situation in that Australia didn't really come alive until the very end. Denmark sort of, yeah, they came alive in periods, but what, what's interesting is they, they just they haven't had that one game where we've looked and seen Denmark and thought, yeah, this team is a bit of a threat. The big issue there being it literally took until injury time for the big attacking threat to come um, through Vanskars. Funnily enough, from a set piece, they do score a lot of goals from set pieces. Vanskars' header against China pushes its way through somehow. China have a threat of their own. You know, it was, it was a great, it was a great game, but you wouldn't look at it and say that Denmark are a big, big threat and that they have any ascendancy or momentum or however you want to phrase it that they that they have any of this going. And unfortunately, against Haiti, yeah, okay, Haiti didn't actually concede from open play. Lo and behold, until injury time. So the only time uh, that we've seen Denmark be this big threat attackingly, it's come at the very death, and it's required this set play or this big action out of defence that you know has bolstered uh, you know the the uh, the attacking um, third to really fire up in a certain way. But none of that's none of that's really been a big threat from open play. And I just I sit here thinking Denmark's Denmark's attacking prowess and how they're going to find it in the game is uh, is the one really big question in terms of uh, them finding a lot of that inner momentum. But it's something that's going to have to happen in a flash. It's something that we don't have a, a track record of, of seeing. It's interesting because if I look at how the Matildas are defensively, I'd argue we're more vulnerable from open play and, pro- and less vulnerable from set pieces. I think we're actually defensively, at the very least, quite good in the air. You've got tall players in there, Alana Kennedy, Claire Hunt, she's got a bit of height on her. Mackenzie Arnold's probably one of the taller keepers in the competition as well. Set pieces isn't exactly the area that I, well, for the Matildas at the very least, I'd worry about too much, and considering that's been Denmark's primary route to goal in this tournament so far. If they don't find another way, they very well might struggle in this game. But then you look at it from a different perspective where the Matildas, even even though the only game, game we've considered goals in was that Nigeria game, we have looked vulnerable in patches, especially against Canada. I think our desperate defending in that game was very good, but they still created a number of chances that on another day they might have scored. So uh, Denmark may look at that and go, okay, yeah, there's an opportunity for us to take advantage of this year. It's just a matter of going out and doing it. So obviously it will take a change in system from Denmark to kind of counteract that and take advantage of the Matilda's um, probably weaknesses and negatives in their style of play. But if they can do that, suddenly the Matildas have a lot of work to do in that, in that regard. But you look at it from the other perspective as well. Denmark probably have been a little bit more tighter in defence. They've got their two clean sheets as well. They only conceded the one goal to England. And let's be honest, 
that was one hell of a goal from can Lauren we, James can that we, they conceded. Can we please touch on that? Sorry, can we please touch on the? I was planning on doing it later, but Lauren James has been fantastic in this tournament. I don't. Oh think... yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. If there's talking points, we'll, we'll somehow get them out. But <laughs> yeah. can we can we actually just look at that again? Look, isolate that that fact. Denmark have two clean sheets. Cody, look. It's not even just two I, clean sheets for that England game for the most. China was scrambling and they they didn't look they didn't look anywhere near like scoring a goal. They kept the game interesting, but it was more their inefficiency of being able to be a threat and Denmark's inability matching with that. That's why the game was so tense and it was nil nil for so long. I'm sorry that that clean sheet isn't actually that impressive. Haiti didn't score a goal all tournament, so don't so don't don't look here and say oh Denmark have to no. But it, look, so I, they, I think they've not, they've not really done a lot to achieve that. I, I understand that. But they, look, you can't disregard a clean sheet. The fact is, they haven't conceded a goal. But yeah, like you said, China maybe it was more on their end why Denmark were able to hold them out. When you play a side like Haiti, you shut down Demore, now you can't shut down any threat that they're going to pose. So yeah, in that regard, maybe that's, that's maybe what I brought up wasn't the primary thing that we should be talking about. But now they've got to play, face a side that's probably a little bit more sing- similar to England, where there isn't just one singular threat. You've got to watch like Haiti. There is three or four players that are capable of getting around them, capable of scoring goals. But when they played against England, for the majority of the game, they were able to shut that down. Obviously, England scored early. Maybe they thought, all right, we've got the result. Let's just try and settle on this. You're going to play an Australia side that is maybe going to be a little bit more ruthless considering the situation. So there is that kind of um, element to the game as well. I guess the only other question that you could ask is, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, it, it's 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 interesting because I've focused on one end of the pitch and you've focused on the complete other end of the pitch. Well, we've got to talk about everything, don't we? <laughs> well, how boring would it be if we just well, spoke about just, one part of it? Let's just talk about how each of the individual players in midfield will move and will complete will complete the whole set. I don't think um, we have enough time for that. <laughs> and we're not we're not formation gurus as much as we're football fans. Anyway, look. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you do. Your point about Lauren James is important because Denmark will have to review the England game and the England game alone in how they counteract a, a major attacking threat from someone like a Hayley Brasso, Caitlin Ford, if she steps up in a certain way. Cast your minds back, and this is the perfect point. The game in Viborg that they played, Caitlin Ford scored a brace. So that is actually something that's really important. If she's going to rotate a certain way, if she's going to be a, a, a pivot going forward, um, you know, move around a lot. Cause a bit of a threat coming out on the wing, um, you know the, that that's important because that actually that actually literally we've seen it with our own eyes. We have the proof. That's how Denmark lost last time to the Matildas. So so you've, you've they've got to be aware of every every individual threat. Let alone the fact. Let alone if Sam Kerr comes on in the last twenty minutes. I mean Denmark Denmark will have a lot on their plate uh, defensively and in attack as well as as, as we mentioned. But you also have to sort of read that and understand that the Matildas are going to be under similar pressure, especially if, to go back to the point about New Zealand and the Matildas in that Canada game, if Denmark bring the tempo early, regardless of how their game plan goes, the Matildas are in trouble. So be be fully aware of it and be fully aware of what the threat is from from every direction. In simple terms, who do you think are watching in Brisbane? Uh, so, look, we're probably under the assumption that France beats Morocco. I think uh, of the two teams, Australia matches up better against France anyway. And again, the... Uh, no, I, I just the, purely mentioned out of Australia. I just purely mean out of Australia and Denmark. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. But this is... I'm just giving you a very long answer, Cody. <laughs> After um, I specifically um, requested the opposite. <laughs> no, no but, um, but um, 
yeah, look, I, I think that um, that if if I'm picturing who's in that quarterfinal in Brisbane, yeah, it's 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 the Matildas. It's the Matildas because I think Denmark Denmark are going to have quite a lot for Sundergaard to really look at. Quite a lot from from each individual area of the pitch for Sundergaard to really and and I'm thinking about this from a Danish perspective. I'm not looking at this as a one-on Matildas fan. I'm doing literally the opposite, right? So, what what more could you ask of me as someone that's trying to biasly say Australia are going to win? I just think that tactically Denmark are going to have to bring a unique approach that didn't work in the England game, and uh, if that if that has to be adjusted on top of of you know the problems that they're having in offence and uh, and you know um, you know. In other areas of the pitch as well. Sorry, I'm just stumbling through that now. But yeah, look, I, I think I think Denmark are, uh, are really going to have a lot to uh, to handle there. Yeah, look, I'm, I'd say the Matildas as well. That's who we're watching in Brisbane. I'm going to say for all the exact reasons that you you said as well, because frankly, we've got a hell of a lot more to talk about because there is 31 other teams, 30 other teams actually spoken a fair bit about Denmark and maybe a couple others in Group B. But the ones that we mainly spoke about, Canada, they're knocked out now, so we don't have to talk about them until later. There are there is a certain few teams that I really want to focus on as well, and it is the three African teams that we will see mm-hmm. in the round of sixteen. Now, for anyone that didn't um, catch this, and if you didn't, go back and listen to this very good pod with Alicia Canavas. But her and it may have come from her South African origins as well, but she really was banging on the drum about these African teams and how we really could be seeing a changing of the guard, to use her words exactly, in this tournament. And I use the phrase kind of awakening a sleeping giant. And we really are seeing that. It's the first time we've seen three African teams make the round of 16. It's the first time we've seen three African teams, or more than one, finish in the top two um, of a group in the World Cup. Where it, it is really a turning point for women's football in Africa, because we're seeing sides that maybe a lot of people wouldn't have even expected to make this stage of the tournament. We talk about the comparisons between the Men's World Cup in 2022. Morocco, you could kind of see them. Getting out of the group this stage, I don't think many people would have given them a go. South Africa, a lot of people would have counted them out. They've managed to find their way through. Even Nigeria, who, looking back, when you see their side on paper, we probably didn't give them enough credit than what they deserve because they've actually got some very, very good players in their team. And we'll start with them because it's funny because all three of them genuinely have a unique path with how they've gone through this tournament. Nigeria's probably been the one that's, I guess, the most dominant in a way. I don't know if that's the right words to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. Sorry? I think I think it is. Yeah, just, no, because, look, just because Morocco lost a game six nil, and South Africa, South Africa never established dominance on a game. I think they just they were more clinical of anything. Well, yeah. Well, look, I don't know if Nigeria necessarily established dominance in the game. I didn't get to catch that Nigeria game. I do oh, not Nigeria uh, Ireland game. Listen, I do apologise. I would actually say match day one, match day one. They so they didn't establish dominance like statistics. The traditional we're, we're in not, the traditional sense. About, yeah. I'm, I'm talking dominance in the traditional sense. Yeah. They didn't really do that. They didn't have most of the ball. They weren't the ones creating the more chances. But if you're looking at what they were trying to do in the game, obviously they everything comes back to their defensive foundations. That they did very well. And even you could argue even in the Australia game they did that quite well because everything Australia was able to throw at them. Obviously we disagree with how Australia did throw said things at them. It, it, it played in Nigeria's hands and they were able to counterattack very, very well. When they brought in Oshawala into the, in the second half, it it was pretty much game over by that point for Australia. You, you bring on a striker like that, it, it it'll turn the game on his head. But you look at the other two games as well, where it was just genuinely about holding him out and seeing what we can do going forward. And it's funny that the one game they won was statistically at least their 
worst defensive performance. But looking at Nigeria on their own, what have you made on their tournament so far? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're, we're like uh, you know, Canada, we're, we're sort of seeing the narrative front and center, and I think heads sort of rolled, and and you know, an impression was made that that first day in Melbourne, because Canada actually did pump a lot at that Nigerian team, and we always knew, we always knew going into the tournament, we always knew Oshala is an incredible player. It's all about the counter attack, and it's all about getting forward to her. The irony of that being, the emphasis is always on when the ball goes forward. The emphasis is never on when the ball's going back in the other direction and you've got to, you've got to sort of stop that, right? And, and because of that, you know, you go into that game thinking, well, Nigeria will have to be on the counter, but you sort of leave it at that. You don't really analyze more about what they're doing at the back. And I think, I think what's crazy is we're going into them as a, a round of 16 team playing against England, right? They're playing against England who are going to do exactly the same thing. We're still not necessarily talking about the individuals involved in what makes a very sturdy Nigerian defense. Like, I, I, would, would you, would you, is that a fair thing to say? No, no, like, I think, cause you, you look, you look at Nigeria, you, your mind straight away goes to Oshawala. And that's probably the reason why we're not going into the defense any further. We're not, at least before the tournament, no one was really familiar with the names of those people in the Nigerian backline. But the reality is they have stepped up very, very well so far. Yeah. And they, they, they made a big impression. They, you know, they, they absorbed. Um, what Canada offered, and then you take take away the fact that in the second game, right, Oshwala, correct me if I'm wrong, but Oshwala didn't didn't actually start. The goals the goals were provided. No, that's Oshwala. what I mean. She came into the game at two one, made it three one. You bring her into a game when you're already two one up. The way they were playing, you got. I remember being in the stands. I remember seeing her come on. I'll be honest. At this stage, I didn't realize she wasn't playing. I thought she was already on the field. So I've seen her come into the game when Nigeria. Every time they've gone forward, they look like they're going to score. And now they're bringing on one of the best strikers in the world. All I could sit there and think was, oh shit, these girls are going to get three or four. And they, they did get a third and it came through, take a guess, or Shawala. Yeah. So, yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and I think that Nigeria's tournament really was dictated again by the fact that they were able to press and counter and, and, and do those elements of the game really well. But what, what I found particularly interesting from the management of uh, Randy Waldrum in particular, was the fact that he is very vibes and he is very mentally sort of based with with how he he, play, he gets the girls to play, and you can see the effect that that has on on certain leaders in the team. I'm thinking um, to 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 sort of uh, you know name a name in that backline. I'm thinking of, of Ashley Pluntra as someone that uh, really stepped up and has really sort of bought into the vision of the team, not just because of her personal story being a white Nigerian and, and all that stuff. But, but actually, the way that a lot of that discipline and the way that the mentality was established in the Australia game, you're, you come into that third game against Ireland, right? You've already got the ascendancy. And where they could have actually gone on and won the group, uh, Randy's played a very sort of smart brand of football where he's said, let's just take this on our own terms and let's play like we're still desperate to get a point out of it and let's play a really calm style. And uh, and the antics from someone like a Katie McCabe was was flushed straight out of the game. Ireland did not come out with a with a hot head at all because Nigeria were just there to go about it, play their football, play their play their brand in a really good way. And and that is an element that is one part of the group because of what was happening in Melbourne with the with the Matildas. That's one part of Nigeria's story that no one's talking about. That no one's no one's actually going to be be talking about at all. And I think that that the whole campaign in this group stage and what's worked for them. It's the little tidbits. It's the little things that Waldrum is picking out as a coach. I mean, he's he's just some old white guy from Texas, for goodness sake. We're not, 
we, we didn't know that we were talking about the equivalent of Pep Guardiola in terms of his tactical, you know, mastermind here, but he, he kind of is because he's, 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 he's approached all three games differently, right? Even with the, the counterattacking being at the forefront of what they're doing, he's approached all three games differently. And he's, he's sort of done exactly what the team needed to do in all three games. Let's not forget that. So they come up against England, Cody. <laughs> They, they're actually a really good chance. Every, everything you mentioned here, I don't know why, but Ted Lasso is coming to the brain. And this is coming from someone that hasn't actually seen the show <laughs> don't yet. Compare, so don't I don't compare know if that's, um, I don't know if that's discriminatory in, in any way, shape, or form. But yeah, look, you got to give credit to Nigeria. You look at the keepers, all Nadozi, um, saved the penalty in that first game too. Um, came up big against Australia a few times. Like I said, unfortunately, I didn't catch, um, the Ireland game because I was so busy celebrating Australia beating Canada. But I'm sure she would have um, played her part in that game too. I know Ireland's keeper did do very well in that game as well. But either way, we'll move on because there are two other African sides we want to talk about. And South Africa is the next one where you mentioned before they did kind of ascend their way into the tournament. They had a very, very good game against Sweden in, 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 their, round, in their round one game. They probably could have arguably won that game. Sweden showed their class, were able to come back into it. They go into the Argentina game. They go ahead again. Argentina worked their way back into the game. Suddenly, going into the Italy game, and correct me if I'm wrong, Italy did score first in that game as well this time, didn't they? Yes. Yes, they did. Uh, was, it, uh, was it a penalty? Uh, th- Italy had the lead 1-0. Italy uh, had the, the point is, Italy had the lead in that game. Yeah. Suddenly, this time, Af- South Africa are on the inverse of what they've been faced with most of this tournament, where they've got to chase a game, mm. and they did it just about, about just as good as anyone could have asked of them. Finally got those three points they were looking for, and it was enough to get them out of the group, obviously, because Italy did so poorly in that Sweden game. But the fact that remain is, that was, South Africa has shown in all three games that they are good enough to get out of this group. They were, at, at, at the very least, deserving of being in that conversation of that second spot. Sweden, different beast. They gave Sweden some problems as well, probably more problems than anyone else in that group gave them. But suddenly, everyone kind of looked on that looked at that group on paper and went, no, oh, Italy, Argentina, they'll battle for second spot. South Africa will finish at the bottom. I definitely thought that myself. I've been pleasantly surprised by how well South Africa have done. And it's kind of, how do you say, the same, it's been the same story in each game where they've had to sit back, they've had to soak up pressure, but the way they go forward, it's that beautiful that you can't help but enjoy it still. Like, I know some teams get, fr- some, some fans get frustrated by constantly watching teams like that. And we've seen a lot of teams set up like that this World Cup. But South Africa are probably the best example, maybe by Nigeria in certain senses, of doing it almost exactly right. So my my theory on this, just to reflect back on what I've, what I've spoken about with, with Randy Waldrum, um, Desiree Ellis as well is a very good coach. Now, what's, what's crazy to me is, again, we have a sample size in that we saw South Africa play the Matildas in London, and they, they sort of got walloped, uh, at the time. And, and it, it was very easy to take away from that, that they're, that they're just a, you know, a team that, that's not really going to be much of a story. They're not really a, a good football team, right? But the thing is, and, uh, and to hark on what I said about Waldrum extending to the management of Desiree Alice, these African sides right now are the masters of mentality. Their mentality in the game, their control in the game, it's something that she does very, very well for this team. They have taken the lead. They have taken the lead in all three games. That's just objective fact. They have overcome every situation that was faced to them in a, in a different circumstance. Now, in the Argent, in the case of the Argentina game, things are a little bit out of whack because they went and took the 2 0 lead, right? But you can confidently say that they knew no matter what was in front of them, they knew how to take the lead and they knew how to be in control of a game. 
It fell apart in the Argentina game. Funnily enough, it was still the one that mattered the least out of, out of the three, right? They overcame the deficit against uh, Italy, and they lost to Sweden, but they the fact that they were even winning that game is kind of crazy to begin with because you're playing an opponent that under normal circumstances is a lot better than you. And we've just seen this crazy situation play out time and time again with, with these African sides, both with Nigeria and South Africa, where their game management has just been dealt with so well. And that, that, that's how you, that's how you win the World Cup with a pop four team. Ask Graham Arnold. You, you just, you mentally approach the game in such a way that it's not just about your tactical approach. It's about your mentality and it's about your inner belief in yourself to be able to step up and face all types of adversities. It's, it's something that Des- Desiree Ellis, she's the most spiritual woman. She's an incredible manager. And she's just been able to overcome every situation that the team has faced. So what's next? The Netherlands. I mean, who knows what's going to be thrown at them? We know that they're going to get a very stuff, turn te- stern test. We know that they're going to get a team that can play at them from each and, each and every angle. But they know that. They, they're aware of that. So just like Nigeria coming up against England, what these teams are going to be able to do to push themselves to that next level, I think they know, know exactly what's required. And their mentality is the biggest thing that will win them a game like that. Well, like I said before, each African side that we're going to talk about has kind of had their own path to reaching the knockout stages. And you've had Nigeria, who they've had that kind of core game plan as much as they've had to change it in each match. You've had South Africa, who have kind of grown into this tournament as much as they've played well throughout the tournament. They still have had to kind of grow into it in a sense where the results have gotten better each time. Then you look at Morocco, who I understand it was their first ever game at a World Cup, but it definitely wasn't the start that you'd want. And for them to turn around after such a heavy loss and then to go and beat two sides as well. South Korea, I think we'll talk about that later, but they've got their own issues. Um, their coach talking about it very vehemently in the post-match press conference. But then to beat Colombia, who themselves were one of the big stories of the World Cup, particularly within the Cachero, for them to then go into that game, win that game and secure a spot in the knockouts. Obviously, it did take Germany to not do too well in Brisbane. But look, you were at that game. You saw the scenes live in person. What was the feeling like in the stadium? And look, considering how special 2022 was for Morocco, how big is this going to be for then women's football in the country too? Look, I'll just say first and foremost that that will stay with me forever, what, what I saw. The footage of them, uh, you know, being in that huddle and they all, all chase together and they all just sort of jump out and jump up at the same time. That, that image is etched in my, in my brain and I was stood very, very close to it actually. Um, and, and what, what's remarkable is like I've been, I've been getting all these little snaps and all these videos from, from out the tournament. That's the only thing I didn't film because I just was on the edge of, I just wanted to take in that moment authentically. I didn't, I didn't want to pull my phone out because it was just, it was just that special. And also something that, um, I actually want to discredit, uh, like the stadium announcers and, and stuff at, at um, Perth Rectangular Stadium. Because we weren't, you had to, you had to sort of do your own research on the situation. No one in the stadium knew what the situation was with, with Germany, unless people actually looked it out. And then you heard people screaming, Hey, Germany aren't winning this game against South Korea. The Moroccans are going through. We, we really didn't realize until right at the end when it had happened that it was just such a beautiful moment. But on the whole of their tournament, I mean, <laughs> let's not forget, Cody, we had the biggest egg on our face. Because we sat here going, oh, Group H, how good is it? It's so delicious. How, how good is the prospect? Now, it still ended up being the organized chaos that I personally did to be. But literally, immediately after we recorded that, they got well 6-0. 
<laughs> and can we can we can we just well, I, look? I sent you a message after because obviously we recorded it went up the next yeah. day. I think there was like four games in between when we recorded and when we started and when the mm. episode actually got uploaded. And I sent you a message going, "Oh shit, this episode has aged so poorly already." Yeah. And then it, eventually you give it a week, suddenly it looks good again. Yeah, it, it, it did. It did. Um, and you know, I, I discredited Columbia far beyond what they were capable of. But what I didn't really expect was the fact that in person, I would still see them be the sort of lackluster, you know, finicky team that, that they expected to be. And honestly, part of that isn't that they're a bad team. Part of that from a Colombian perspective, I know we're talking about Morocco, but let me just touch on it, uh, because we will talk about them later. But part of it was actually the fact that they were already through and didn't feel pressure. To, to be honest with you. Um, and what that led to was Morocco realizing, well, we still have something to play for. So we're like with New Zealand, like with the Matildas, like with Denmark, like with all these teams they're talking, that we're talking about. The tempo is the biggest thing. And they came out, they set that tempo. They had, they had a chance within the first two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. They were already, they were already pumping. And it's just like, that's exactly what you need. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to say it for the other, uh, you know, as, just as I did for the other African sides as well. You're a side that's not expected to go as far. Your mentality and the way that you approach and you approach that is really big. So they've brought the tempo. They've brought the mentality as well. They, they, you know, they found the goal by fortuitous means with the penalty, the penalty being saved by the way, the thousands of Colombians in Western Australia going berserk. I heard the loudest noise and then heard the quietest whisper from a few polite Moroccan families sitting around me, um, you know, as as they sort of tilted in and they score. And it's just the most bizarre thing because, you know, they play the goal song, right? It's this famous, uh, you know, Arabic music that they're playing in the background. The players run over to the corner flag, but we're all hearing the hush of the Colombian fans go down. And I think at that point, a few people had realized, well, South Korea had scored early in that game. So we're actually a chance here. And that's when the conversation started. But, you know, yeah, just an, an incredible night. Um, literally one of the most famous moments in the history of North African football, especially considering the individual journeys of these girls being girls in a majority Muslim Arab country as well. Um, but, yeah, look, they've, they've found their way through and they've found the same route to success that the other African teams have had. The one caveat I'd say here, Cody, is that they're not, they're not going to be that good against France. Um, I don't really see because France, France's own momentum and ascendancy has grown on over time. France were in a situation where they really needed to pile on, uh, you know, some, some goals to build their confidence after the nil nil to Jamaica. They've gone and done that now. And, um, and they, it, it's a big mismatch that I can't see Morocco's mentality and tempo overcoming. And, you know, we already sort of have a reference point for this. They, they can't, they're going to struggle against quality opposition. They got whack six nil by Germany. So Nigeria and South Africa, I'd give a chance. Morocco, look, respectfully, I love them. I love everything about that team and I will never stop loving the Moroccan approach to football, the Moroccan curriculum for football, the way that that country and that sport have just come together so well in the last two years on the global stage. I love it, but I don't really give them a chance going forward. Yeah. Well, look, I think that's what a lot of people said in 2022 and that the men's side men should do exactly that. But look, I guess we'll see how it plays out. You talk about France, you're talking about egg on your face as well. I did ask you if there were any issues with her Renard after that um, nil all draw with Jamaica. And I probably got egg in my face because he's reacted exactly how they needed to. They beat Brazil. Um, they beat Panama in quite good fashion as well, as much as Panama did go ahead. But that's another story in itself. There are a, a number, number of other shock results that we can talk about. And to move on to this stage, I will go with, I guess, the most meaningless one in a way, 
but probably the one that comes closest to home as well, the Philippines beating New Zealand. Now, look, both sides have got knocked out. It didn't mm. really mean much in the end, but for an Australian to be at the helm of it, that's got to be something pretty special for us, isn't it? Um, the Perth Glory manager. <laughs> Got yeah, you yeah, said, you'll be saying you said, a lot more of him now, eh? Close, yes, you said close to home. I'm going to spend uh, the summer in, in Alan Studgett's warm embrace, and I am just, I am buzzing to just to just talk to the guy. When when we're off there, you know, just at the club, to just talk to the guy. He is, so I've actually, I've actually met him before, um, and we, we spoke briefly about his scene in um, the November 16 movie where I don't know if you know this, and I don't know how many people know the story. It, it brought me to tears personally, but Alan Stachich was sitting next to Marco Bresciano's father um, on that fateful day, and Bresch scored the goal. And uh, Stadge reached over to him because he, he, he was crying. He was just so overcome with emotion. Stadge, Stadge just grabbed him on the leg and was like, dude, dude, what's going on? This is such an incredible, just look around. Australia is having this big moment. And he just turns and says, that's my son. He just points at the ground, that's my son. Um, and Stadjic recalling that story brings me to tears every time. Um, but yeah, yeah that just um, gave me goosebumps. Actually, not gonna yeah, lie. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. But um, <laughs> yeah, that 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 escalated very quickly. I apologize for that. But you you get you 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 build a real character for who this guy is, right? And you can just imagine the second they stepped foot in Irvine, California, for that training camp ahead of the Asian Cup, the impact and the aura. And, uh, and the mission that he would have set for these girls and the way that they've stepped up and delivered it. I, I know I'm saying this after they've lost six nil to Norway. Okay. But, but just like Morocco, these teams, these teams will get flogged because that's sort of what we expect to happen in these fixtures. But, you know, I, I've, I've said it enough about these pop four teams. When the mentality's right, they'll go on and do anything. What Studge did with that team was, was incredible. The Asian Cup, the Asian Cup, I'll be honest with you, the means with which they qualified for the World Cup. I, I actually have a lot of qualms with that. The Women's Asian Cup is possibly one of the most, in terms of format and administration, the most flawed football tournament that's ever taken place. And I, I firmly, firmly believe that. I'll be and honest, it annoys me that they're using those national national kind of tournaments to decide who's going to go to the World Cup. Yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, yeah, it's, go it's, through and process. Do what the Europeans do. It's, it's plain and simple. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. But I, I had my reservations about the Philippines team. And then we started to see more and more of Serena Bolden uh, for the Wanderers. And we sort of got wind of the fact that there were some quality players around, right? The first game against Switzerland, look, they were pretty routinely beaten. But there was there were signs there of a team that won't won't be embarrassed by any means. And, and there was a lot of positives to take from it. When they approached that New Zealand game, they had the biggest asset. The fact that New Zealand had the, the pressure of an entire country to go into the cake tin where many a famous moment in Kiwi sport has happened, to grab six points and to get the hell into the round of 16 at a home World Cup and bring football home in that sense, right? Home bush or whatever the Kiwi equivalent would be. Home, home, home Eden? No, I don't know. Home Eden. <laughs> Let's go with that. Uh, and, <laughs> and look, look. They they really capitalised on the fact that New Zealand were were you know were really uh, stretched out mentally by um, you know the scale of what was in front of them and they came out and they they played a performance where they they knew exactly what they needed to do defensively you know they counter counter attacked uh, well enough to the point where you know they got the goal from open play as well can we can we just talk about the fact that they got the goal from open play yeah <laughs> no it's it's a fair point it is it's a fair really, point really impressive oh it's it's it, 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 look. As much as we say it's meaningless, it's not going to be meaningless to the people of the Philippines. It's 
it doesn't say much in terms of the grand scheme of the tournament, but that's the moment that the nation of the Philippines is going to take with them forever. It's it's history that's been made, and for that, it's definitely worth and pondering on. Honestly, really, but you don't have to look far at all. Look at the look at the social media comments on Perth Glory. They announced Stadjic. It's it's and just the Philippines. Just the Philippine people honestly. are going nuts. Yeah, that's that's cool. And honestly, it's great. Like whatever Stadjic does in his career. That is going to be a crowning moment for him. He could go on and get the wooden spoon with Perth, but he still has that. And look, the way Perth, things are going to Perth, I don't know if you're confident for the season. I don't know if they're going to be pulling up many stumps even with someone like him um, at the helm. But that is a conversation for when we get back into our A-League pods. So I will move on from that. And I want to talk about the Japan-Spain game. For those that do see the clips from this pod regularly, will know that I have a very big Spanish flag in the background of um, my camera. Now... Going into this game, I was obviously with you as we were starting to watch it before we went over to the Matildas game. And you asked me what I thought would come out of this. And I, in no uncertain terms, said that Spain would essentially wipe the floor with Japan. And quite the opposite happened. And I know you, I don't know if you said that you thought Japan were going to win, but you definitely saw a possibility of them kind of taking this game. I need you to go through with me because it is quite intelligent. So I actually distinctly remember exactly where we were stood when I said this. Um, the, no, I just brushed the, you off. The, the, the bridge, the bridge over the walkway beside sort of the MCG. And there's a few nice restaurants and bars. And we were standing by some traffic lights. And I just, I don't know, don't, I don't know why, but we just sort of were talking about Spain a little bit. And I turned to you and I said, the biggest thing in a game like this is the fact that Spain don't have form to play an opponent that's going to punish them a lot on the counter attack. But, but not just counter attacking football. Obviously, I don't mean that because Zambia and Costa Rica, implored counter-attacking football in their own right. But the issue is that what Japan do and the way that they counteract a lot of European teams is they're okay. They're okay to sit back, but it's, it's the mode of attack going forward with the physicality of it and, you know, the aerial prowess that can come from shorter players on the ball and the way that they, the way that they sort of figure that all together. It's a very, very uh, unique style of playing the game that quite literally only an Asian nation like Japan can, can uh, you know, really put forward in a situation like that. Just struggling for the words at the bit there, but you, you know what I'm getting at. I'd argue and Japan are the only nation that can do that, in all honesty. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. With their style of football, there is a very... There, I'm, I'm of the opinion that there is a, a distinct Japanese style of football that exists, yeah. But, um, you know... From a Spanish perspective, right, you need the confidence and you need the ability to the point where you're quite indestructible going into a game like that. Otherwise, Japan, you know, Japan are going to punish you where it matters most. And they did. And they punished them in such a way that they ended up piling four goals on. And, and a big part of this, a big part of this comes from the fact that Spain's confidence building into a game like that was, uh, was just really not being tested at all and not being in that environment for a long enough amount of time to the point where Japan come back at you in such a unique style and such a unique way of playing their their brand of football where 20% is all they need, 18% in the men's game is all they need, and they can punish these sides, you know, no no problem. Spain just did not know what to do with that. That's why the scoreline ended up being as, as high as it was, because Japan, Japan knew exactly what they needed from that game. Spain was still sort of questioning how we approach a, such a, a unique counter-attacking style, um, and they just didn't, didn't find what they needed at the right time. I had a conversation with a family member about this who was very, very down about, well, not down, but negative about Spain's fortunes moving forward. And taking in what you said, 
I'm going to pose this question to you, but I do believe if they were to meet again in the semi-final and Spain has had to play those high-quality nations moving forward and they do come in with the sharpness that they need against a side like Japan and with that kind of clinicalness in the front third, I don't know if I can find a better word for it, but I feel like if Spain do go into a game against Japan off a series of matches like that, then they could do very well. And if you play that game again in the semi-final, Spain probably win that match. Not that They won't win it 4-0 the way Japan did, but Spain probably do end up coming out on top. Is that something you'd agree with, or do you think if these sides meet again, Japan's probably going to win? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be so confident that Spain win. I would say that Lightning never strikes twice uh, in that way. Japan, Japan don't don't play that game again. It's know, not going to be four nil either way. Either way, it wouldn't be not Spain's yeah, way, not Japan's exactly. way. I, I think we are literally talking like twenty eleven Japan era, where they sort of push teams to their very limit and um and sort of the game goes to penalties or something like that. Which, by the way, by the way. The parallel between 2011 Japan and 2013 in the way that they sort of control and dictate games and put a lot of that pressure on in a very distinct way is so fascinating to me and just speaks to massive areas with the fact that Japan have a football mindset and a football curriculum that just doesn't exist in other parts of Asia and especially especially doesn't has never existed in Australia. There's maybe there's Aussie DNA, but we just aren't able to do what Japan do. And I think that's a very, very interesting talking point going forward. But it's also interesting, Cody, because when you factor in how this Japanese side, not to stray too far from the path, but when you factor in that this Japanese side didn't even play in the Asian Cup final. It's so fascinating to me. It's just so fascinating to me. That's uh, right. I, I, I do firmly, I do firmly believe that an Australia Japan final should have been the final in that Asian Cup. That we are the yeah. two best sides yeah. in Asia, the, the, especially the in women's football. Was, the, 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 the tournament was actually just like, it was, it was broken and the AFC didn't have time to fix it. But what are we talking about? Conversation <laughs> for another <laughs> day. Look, we, there's still plenty to talk about. Yeah. We are, I'm going to move on because otherwise we can talk about Japan and Asian football all day. I, I know you can talk about Japan and Asian football. All day, no, but look, there is one result. It wasn't necessarily a win or a loss for anyone, but that um, USA in the law with Portugal, I think that does deserve a word because one, Portugal did put up a hell of a fight and for their debut, to- debut appearance at the tournament, they deserve a hell of a lot of credit. But the USA, my God, look, I, I, I'm not going to say I'm being a veteran of following women's football. My, my first real experience following a women's World Cup was probably 2015 when Australia started doing really well, but I have never seen a USA side, I'm 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 going to sound probably a little bit overreactionary here, but I've never seen a USA side this bad. Like they they look stale going forward. They look vulnerable at the back. They were they were lucky Portugal hit the post right at the end there at the 87th minute, I believe. Otherwise, they're going home to a debutant ranked pretty much 30 places below them. That's that if that did happen, there's an inquest in there, but because they got through. You see footage after the game of the players dancing, celebrating. I understand you're going to the fans, you're going to sign some stuff and all that. I don't care about that, but the way that they were almost happy with how that game played out, that's how it looked like for me at least. I don't blame someone like Harley Lloyd getting on Fox afterwards and slamming him because there's issues there, and I don't know if this USA side's prepared to answer them in the time frame that they're going to need to. I don't know if they're prepared to come out against a side like Sweden and actually get a result because they're they're definitely looking down the barrel of going home in the round of 16 earlier than they ever have i'm pretty i'm 90 percent sure they've never made it they've never fallen before the final four they've always been in the top four at a world cup 
And now they're yeah. looking at going out in the first knockout rounds if they're not very careful in this Sweden game. Yeah, the, the round so the round of sixteen obviously didn't exist um, prior to, to twenty nineteen or possibly twenty fifteen. But yeah, the round, round of sixteen, yeah, round of sixteen is obviously uh, new in that respect. Um, no, there's always been a quarter final stage, and they've always gone through that at least. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. But let, let me just say this: um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. With regards to the you're you're happy and you're celebrating a uh, a knockout appearance, I'm I'm sorry, but like, do we not remember the fact that the USA were were basically like bashed for celebrating the third annual against Thailand? At least they're being consistent. No, seriously, at least they're being consistent. We're the ones that are that are being hypocrites. Um, no, I, I, I remember that. I remember that, that third annual against Thailand. I said the same thing then. The it doesn't, right? <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, just be be consistent. If you're going to have a strong opinion about this, be consistent. Um, that's. I am being consistent. Also, aren't I? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not, hang on, Cody, I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't directed at you, that's just directed at the, the general aura around their antics, right? No, oh, I, th- I think I know what you mean, you're talking because about with Kylie Lloyd because she was part no of that. What. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, I know she was, I know she yeah. was, I know she was. So now she's she having was. a go at this yeah. side for celebrating. Yeah. Okay, I see, I see where you're going now. In there. I see the hypocrisy in there. <laughs> Don't worry, but, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, if they're, they're going to celebrate the small wins and the big wins, who cares? Who gives a fuck? Like, I don't, I don't care. But you want to talk about Portugal, you want to talk about the USA from a football perspective. It has been said for many, many, many years, and it was it was the talking point of the 2023 World Cup, regardless of where in the world it was held before we knew it was going to be in Australia. Right? We said that this World Cup is all about the emergence of Europe and the downfall of the USA. Look what's just happened. Look what's just happened. <laughs> we've just, we've literally just seen a minnow in the European game come out and almost beat the USA. It's the embodiment of it. And it's, it's perfect and it's poetic. Portuguese girls, you know, crying during the anthem because, because, you know, this is the only chance they've ever had to play at a senior tournament to represent their country. And it's come decades later than it realistically should have. You have a USA team who, <laughs> You know, they're, they're really having to come to terms with the fact that the domestic system that they have is no longer the best in the world. It's not. And it probably hasn't been for, for like a couple of years now. You know, they're having to come to terms with the fact that a lot of veterans that were the heart and soul of U.S. football, U.S. soccer for a very long time, they're not going to be there anymore. There's, they're going through a transitional period and that's fine. Let's not, let's not act like the sky is falling. But yeah, this, this U.S. team have a lot to answer for. From a Portugal perspective, they gave everything. They probably had the tournament that they would have expected to have going into it, if I'm being honest. Um, but they've done really well for themselves, and they should obviously be very proud that a country like Portugal is now on the women's football map as well. From a US perspective, Cody, Cody, if you, if you don't mind me just jumping ahead a bit here, they're getting knocked out in Melbourne. They're getting knocked out. Sweden, Sweden are winning that game. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to sound harsh here. I, I'm not going to feel any sort of remorse when, or I'll, I'll say if I'll, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of hope. But if they do get knocked out, I'm, I'm going to enjoy seeing Sweden go through. Not because yeah. I'll enjoy seeing USA lose, but because the better football team goes through to the to the end of the tournament. And yeah. it's not like a if Mor- <laughs> it's not like if, it's not like yeah. a situation where if Morocco win, oh, you're, it's good to see like a you know someone emerging in world football really take their stride and take their their story further into the tournament. If USA go through. Big whoop. No one cares. Unfortunately, people in the USA do. 
we don't. And right, I can right. sound harsh all I want, but it's interesting what the point you make about the domestic leagues because up until 2019 to 2020, if you're a good almost footballer, essentially you needed to go to the USA to kind of be one a professional or two a big name in women's football. Now we're seeing the traditional big clubs in Europe really start to invest in their women's programs, and now the best footballers are playing in Europe. But we're not seeing Americans go over there. They're still stuck in their bubble of, okay, our league's the best league. We need to go over there if we want to be at the top of women's football. But what that means is they're not playing week in, week out against the best players in women's football anymore. And you can't go to one league to play the best women's footballers week in, week out anymore because it's spread around your England, your France, your Germany, your Spain. The only thing we're seeing in those leagues as well is the top of those leagues are moving so far forward ahead of the other bottom teams in those leagues that it does call to create this quality disparity, but that's a story for another day. The point is, I think this the only way the USA move forward, and they're not going to move forward in this tournament, unfortunately. I don't see it happening. Whether they go through to the quarterfinals or not, they're not going to go on and win this tournament. They're, 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 I'd be surprised look, if they even make the semis. But I, I, I look, I, I have. Let me play devil's advocate and kind of redact. I'm, I, I'm not going to redact how confidently I just said that because it is very possible. Going it is a big call. That, it is a big call. Yeah, you know, it's a huge call. It's a huge call. But let me just say there is also the possibility that the USA grow with the tournament, right? As any champion team would, they kind of grow with the tournament and they grow from, uh, from, from you know, the position that they're in. It also would actually kind of explain if they were confident with uh, with Flag Coast management and the way that they were sort of growing with it from a fitness perspective and whatever else. It also kind of explains why they carried on in the way that they did after the, the Portugal game because they knew that no matter what was in front of them, that they were going to be able to do it in typical US fashion and kind of grow along with it as they, as they go along. That theory, that theory definitely holds up by, by, uh, by any means, but I still am inclined to pick Sweden in the game for the simple fact that there's enough negative assets. There's enough net negatives at play for their camp as opposed to Sweden's. And I think that's also very fair as well. And the main point that I was trying to say before though, what this, what we'll see going from this tournament is, Hopefully the USA start to, or USA footballers start to realize if they want to maintain themselves as some of the best footballers in the world, they may need to start looking outside their own country to play their domestic football. They may, you may start seeing a lot more Americans and a lot more young Americans make those moves over to Europe, start playing in those big competitions. Because look, as much as we can sit here and be negative and say, oh, yeah, the USA are gone, the USA are down in the dumps, yada, 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 and we'll enjoy saying it. There, there is still the potential there. There are still a lot of good footballers and a lot of good young footballers that have big futures ahead of them. I think one thing as well you've got to take into account with this USA side is they are very much in a transitional period where their best players from yesteryear aren't good enough to compete at the top anymore and their best players coming, coming through aren't good enough to compete at the top yet. But come the next World Cup 2027, those good young players are probably going to be good enough. So the next World Cup that comes around, they're probably going to be back in the top four again and we're going to go, we're going to have to go back to saying, yep, America's up there with the favourites. So we can take this tournament as it is, but it's probably in the grand scheme of things going to be an anomaly in their history in a way. But look, there is one last result that I do want to talk about because before we kind of move on to what's going to happen in the future and kind of the other bigger stories, uh, Germany, because that's someone who I didn't see faltering at all in this tournament. And the fact that they've, I think the Columbia game, they were maybe in a sense unlucky. Columbia did come out, they played some really good football, but South Korea, they looked, I guess, devoid of ideas other than crossing Insula to um, Alex Pop. Other than that, they didn't really look threatening at all. And considering we spoke before about how South Korea 
do have kind of their issues off-field. Um, our editor, Christian Marchetti, was at the uh, post-match press conference in Adelaide, and he said the um, South Korean coach was very, um, what did he say, skeptical? Maybe that's, I'm not, I'm not thinking of the right word, but he had a lot of things to say about South Korean women's football and the standard of it and the standard they expected themselves. Now, we've seen it before where coaches have done that basically as a resignation letter, but he's kind of woken a reaction to at least the South, South Korean side to get a result against Germany and what a significant result it proved to be. But looking at Germany themselves, this one is a massive shock. But look, did you see this coming? And I guess, did you see those games? What did you make of Germany's tournament as a whole? Because it started as perfect as it could and it's ended almost as bad as it possibly could as well. Did I see it coming? Yes. Yeah. I, well, not confidently, but I could definitely Before see the it tournament, you mean? Before the tournament, no, uh, no. Before match day three, yeah, hundred okay, percent. That, that makes sense. Because, that makes because sense. I, I knew what Morocco needed to go through was a slip up from Germany, and when they came out with that really good tempo, plus the fact that South Korea had zero points, South Korea could have been a lot better in those first two games. They, they really could have, and I, I felt there was going to be fire in the belly there, fire in the belly that Germany historically, all European sides historically failed to really see in non-European sides. Um, and that was something that I, I couldn't really get out of my head, as, as especially as Morocco brought 1-0. I thought, this is almost, this is almost likely to happen. But look, that, you know, that, that, that's me just sitting there and, and, and talking about what was going through my mind at the time. If I'm to kind of reflect on the whole experience as a whole, have, have, okay, Germany haven't played that good, but have they played like terribly, horribly bad to the point where they deserve to be knocked out? Because I'm, I'm sitting here kind of thinking, they walloped Morocco 6-0. Like, they did everything that needed to be asked asked of them in that game. The loss to Colombia. The loss to Colombia was a, an interesting one in that Colombia had definitely come out with a lot of fight and a lot of confidence that, again, you could argue that they really hadn't expected, as with the South Korea game. But it also sort of left them in a position where they still knew exactly what they needed to do um, going forward. And they weren't going to be knocked out necessarily because of that game. So Colombia come through and play this really nice attacking style. It startles Germany okay. But I still think match day three is all where the mentality is lost. And it's, and it's mostly done by the fact that they've had Colombia bring a better standard than they've expected. And the South Koreans have rolled them with exactly the same thing. So really, I don't think they've necessarily played that terribly. I think it's actually the other teams you should look at and the way they picked themselves up that were the real big winner in the end. Because Morocco, coming back from losing, uh, you know, nil six to get six points in the tournament, that's a very rare thing. That is a very rare asset. Colombia to play the amazing, you know, uh, you know, flare enhanced attacking style that they played to to grab six points from two games. That's huge for South Korea to bounce back from all their mentality problems, all the structural problems that Colin Bell felt like addressing to come back in the way that they did. It's also it's monumental. And Group H was always going to be chaos. Let me just say that again. Okay, I still pick Germany to overwhelmingly finish first, but Group H was always going to be chaos, and it was. And Germany, Germany should have been be better chaos. prepared. No, and yeah, look, Germany should have been better prepared. Looking at that Colombia game at the very least, that Germany-Colombia game was fantastic. It's probably one of the best football games I've seen live, and that definitely was enhanced by the massive Colombian fan base that was in the stands. But Germany didn't play bad in that game. They actually played quite good. I thought they were unlikely to lose that game. But then you go to South Korea, South Korea got that goal early. Germany are panicking as they go through because they realize if we lose, or no, if, we, if we don't win, we're out. 
But all you could see from them was, yeah, we get the ball, we're looking for pop. We get the ball, we're looking for pop. And when you rely so heavily on one player, no matter how good that player is, it's always going to end badly for you. And we see it in our own backyard as well with Sam Kerr. Whenever we're behind in the game and we're focusing on, okay, can we get the ball to Sam Kerr? We struggle. We, we, we ignore world-class players around us and we struggle. And that's what happened with Germany in that game. I don't think, especially that second half against South Korea, that wasn't them at their best. And it was when they needed to be at their best. So I understand, yeah, look, maybe their performance in the tournament as a whole wasn't deserving of them going out. But they didn't step up when they needed to. And because of that, they go home. I, 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 there's no other way to put it, really. But um, look at the tournament as a whole. We've got some of the heavyweights as well getting knocked out. We've already spoken about Canada. But the last one I think we've got to talk about is Brazil. Now, the way that all played out, that nil or draw with Jamaica, I was at the France-Panama game watching a nine-goal thriller. But somehow the entertainment was managed to be in a nil or draw 800 kilometers away from me. That's, that's a massive story for Jamaica. And I know you'll, you'll, Matt, I know you, I know you'll be loving something like this. How'd you take that game in? Okay. So look, Brazil, I, I have to be honest with you. Other than the Marta stuff, I can't talk about them. I watched Jamaica in person in Perth. I can tell you everything about Jamaica. So that's, that's, I want you <laughs> my, to tell me about Jamaica. Yeah, my, my analysis on this is, is, is actually this simple, right? The Swabi sisters are fucking world class. <laughs> they are some of the best footballers who have ever lived. Man or woman, and <laughs> they've just, they've announced themselves onto the world stage in just the most incredible. Jamaica haven't conceded a goal. Those that's that's nuts to think man, about. What the fuck were their parents feeding them for breakfast in that village in, in Montego Bay or Kensington or wherever they're from? Mate, mate, they are world class. <laughs> it's true with a lot because this is a side that had to raise money. They had to do a GoFundMe yeah, to get to yeah. this tournament because they're not backed by their federation. And they've come to Australia and they've done that. Like that is yeah, nuts. Look, what what gets me though? What gets me is if if you're Jamaica, if you're Lorna Davidson in that situation, and you find out that Bunny Bunny Shaw's red card against France, they play they were incredibly disciplined in that France game, and I mean that. Sorry, I mean that from a defensively. I don't mean actual discipline on the pitch because obviously Bunny Shaw has gone off. It was it was contentious. It was it was actually sort of contentious anyway, right? But they actually they yeah they did what they needed to do in that situation. Bunny Shaw goes off and you're going, well, we've got to fly to the other side of the country for this Panama game. We need, we need some other leaders just to, to stick up in the team. And, you know, we, we need to sort of get rid of those demons because without Bunny, where are the goals going to come from, man? Where are they going to come from? And I, you know, McKenna, McKenna was coming forward. Trudy Carter, these players that were sort of making their way up the pitch. I'm just sitting here going, they look lost, man. They, they look like headless chickens out here on the pitch. Where where is this goal going to come from? Like at that corner, Alison Swaby with her and her sister at the back, having having taken on the world's best attack, having diminished France in Sydney in the way that they did, and Alison Swaby comes up and heads that goal into the back of the net. These girls are fucking class. They're just I could not believe what I was seeing. I could not freaking believe what I was seeing. Bunny is not there, and these girls have stood up for their team in a way that you just couldn't imagine. And it's not that McKenna and Carter and all those players that made their way, but it wasn't that they weren't trying. It wasn't that they weren't putting their heart into it. It was just that they're not very good footballers, and they were really out of their depth in that situation. Right? They were they were incredibly out of their depth in a cold night in Perth. They'd have never experienced anything like that. And Alice and Swabi steps up. 
I was I, I, I was in fucking tears because I'm sitting here thinking now they actually have a chance. No matter what Brazil throw at them, now they have a chance. And they stood up in that game and it was just as an emotional occasion for Brazil. But Bunny was back in the team. They thought we can go back on the counter again. We can we can get our way forward onto onto the onto the field here and, and try and find that route to goal. They didn't find it, but they didn't need it. They didn't need it because just like they did against France, just that they they'd done against Jamaica uh, as Panama. Sorry, you have that control, you have that discipline, you have all the ingredients that you need. You have the best centre back pairing that's ever existed in the history of football. Just like come on, like, like the Brazil best centre back actually, pairing in the history. Was that what you said? The Swabi sisters are the best centre back pairing in the history of football. Oh fuck! I love your takes, Matt. Honestly, it's, it's, it's good. <laughs> no, I'm serious, man. Ride this wave with Jamaica. Get around them. It'll be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see Everyone, how they go. Buy your Jamaica branded World Cup scarves from your respective FIFA fan stores and the FIFA fan festivals while they're still up for the month. Get, get your Jamaica scarves. Pick them to beat Colombia. Do it because because they are so well measured as a team. Lorna Davidson as a coach, as a Jamaican coach who's come from nowhere. Just everything about the team, man. The way that Bunny was out and they still kept their mentality and they still kept their composure and they didn't concede a goal. Like, just, yes, yes. They were always going to knock Brazil. No, they weren't. But, like, they, they were always in a position to knock Brazil out is the way I should have worded that. And, well, look, and I, just buy into it, man. Buy into it. They're such a good team. That was something I said before the World Cup, actually. If there was going to be a surprise in the group stage, because I didn't think there were going to be many, I thought it would be Jamaica. And they've gone and done it. You want to yeah. talk about surprises moving forward? Well, that's actually how I do want to kind of wrap this pot up. Is there anyone that you can see in the round of 16 pulling off another shock that we've seen yeah. so many times this tournament? But so, maybe besides Jamaica. Favorites? Well, hold on. No, because there's eight games. So talk about eight games. Off no, no, eight, no. But I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking like just in general. Is there anyone that's going to surprise us in the round of 16? Does Sweden USA count? Um, because Sweden, is the USA Sweden winning? Is, well, I don't, I don't know what like the the betting odds for it are, for example. But oh, I don't know what the betting odds are. I mean, that, I don't assuming bet. that, assuming that, well, no, me neither. Assuming that the USA are the favourites, I'm going to say Sweden knock out the USA, which is still a very big story in its own right. Jamaica beat Colombia to get into the quarterfinals for a quarterfinal against England. I know what we've said about the African sides on this podcast. I'm f- I'm fully aware of that, but I'm I I also know that coming up against England compared to what Nigeria faced. I know, I know what they're capable of, and I've spoken passionately about what they're capable of. But is England just a bit too good? And I think the answer to that would be yes. The Netherlands, a similar sort of vibe. You, you, you have what South Africa know they can do and how they can approach the game. But are the Netherlands just a bit too good? Probably. Jamaica, on the other hand, what have they done? They've diminished France. They've diminished, uh, you know, this threat that Brazil would have had. Colombia, like. They're not as, as big as, well, are they as big as Brazil? I mean, not really. Nah. You can't say so nah. on a continental level. No. It's, it's so the only difference in that game, I think. The only difference in that game, I think, is that Colombia are coming through with a lot of confidence. As much as that Morocco game didn't go the way but, they wanted to. How did that confidence go in Perth? That's what, uh, that's what I mean. Like, besides that Morocco game, like, they've beaten Germany, they've beaten South Korea. South Korea maybe not as big as Germany, of course, but there is still a lot that they can build on. That's probably the only thing that holds me to saying maybe they don't beat Jamaica, but Jamaica are probably coming in with their own confidence and so the fact they haven't conceded. How many goals have they conceded, Cody? Zero. That's literally what I was about to say. Linda Caicedo footy brain against the Swabi sisters is going to be the game of the tournament. 
Um, I'm, that's that's a battle that I'm very intrigued by. Actually, considering how Kasa- how well Casado's been this tournament, system, man. Yeah, it's 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 a matchup that we you, no one looked at it prior to the tournament, right? No one cares. <laughs> but care Lord. now? We care now. Yeah. Considering we how this tournament's gone, we care now. But look, yeah. if there's one thing that you mentioned, actually, I'm going to counteract. If there's one, I'm not going to say counteract. Actually, just maybe possibly can see that South Africa Netherlands game. Netherlands are a very very good side. But, and I don't know why I think this, it's almost like a gut feeling. I think South Korea, it's not South Korea, South Africa. I think there's a possibility South Africa come away with something, come away in that game on top. Okay. I, I let, don't let know why. Let me run why. another one by you. Let me yeah? run another one by you. The Japan-Norway game, that's also a bit of a Netherlands, uh, Netherlands that's a bit of a USA-Sweden uh, uh, encounter in that, look, if, if Norway do get up considering all the problems they've had, I don't know that we're actually that surprised. Per se, I think considering how they started the tournament, maybe you would be. But look, you you don't win a game six 0 by accident. You do it because you're a good yeah. football side. So exactly. if they were going beat Japan, it's a European side being an Asian side. No one's ever going to be surprised by that, unfortunately. Yeah. But look, I think if anyone's going to be surprised by anything, it's how maybe deep Japan can go in this tournament. Because if they, you know, maybe semi-finals is realistic. But if they make the final, that's a big story for them. But that's who, something who, we who can. You tip? You're, you're, you're tipping Japan. To make the final or to win no, this no, game? No, 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 just in that game. You're, you're oh, in that game, look, I, I don't think Japan's going to be beaten. You've got you've got three sides there in Sweden, England, and Japan that have sweeped everything that's come before them, and right. particularly in Japan's fashion, they've done it probably in the best way that anyone has in this tournament so far. That now, does that usually translate to good knockout performances? No, it never does. But Japan looked that good that I don't think you can count them out in this game. But maybe looking forward when they do play, play those higher sides that have seen a lot more of Japan going deeper into the tournament, that's maybe where they're going to start to falter. But this game on its own, I think I think Japan will have too much. Which game has the most goals? Is it that one? Because I'm thinking it's that one. <laughs> oh, this is a tough one. You know what? I actually think it could be the USA-Sweden game. Okay. I don't, I don't yeah. know why. You could do two sides that do love to go forward, two sides that maybe have their vulnerabilities at the back as well. I think we saw it um, with the Sweden-South Africa game. They can be opened up. If there's a game that I have to pick off the top of my head, maybe it's that one. But then again, actually, no, I was going to say Jamaica-Columbia, but I don't see Jamaica conceding too many goals. That's the only thing. That's probably no, the one with the least amount no, of goals. That's a nil-all no, going to penalties. <laughs> oh, 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 you're getting me excited. <laughs> and also, what? am I right in saying, is that, one, is that one on the Tuesday? Because that kind of sucks. If we're getting, like, Switzerland and Spain on a Saturday and that game on a Tuesday, like... Hey, on, hey, 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 hey. Switzerland and Spain is a good game. Ah... Uh... Any any chance to watch okay. Spain is a good game. Okay, okay. And I'm watching Spain on a weekend for once. I'm enjoying it. I'm sorry. I am happy. I'm happy yeah, that's right. on a weekend. Spain. I need that on a weekend. I need I, to I watch the Spain Spanish, side properly. Well, let me say this. Let me let me leave you with this. We can we can finish the podcast on this video. Ramona Backman footy brain or Linda Caicedo footy brain? I I, I like Linda Caicedo to go against her, to be honest. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. Okay. But but Backman's Backman's a good sort of transitional player because she can get forward but also dictate play a lot. And against Spain, that'll be really interesting to see. It will be. But look, I love Linda. I love Linda Casello, the way she plays football. It's, it's, it's <laughs> I love fantastic. the Slavy sisters. This is great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's honestly, I'm that game, it's not one that on paper is looking the most interesting, but I think if you've been following this tournament closely, anyone would be looking forward to that game. But look, we have gone well over what we expected to. If you're still listening, kudos to you. It shows you're enjoying this tournament, as you should be. This has been a fantastic bit of football and probably the most I've enjoyed football in this country ever. And this is coming from someone that is heavily invested in the domestic scene to see such world-class footballers, world-class stories, 
going on in our own backyard. You can only love it. Well, look, we will end it there. I am Cody Ojeda. I've been joined by Matt Olson. This has been another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast and a special one considering it's the World Cup edition. Matt, is there anything else you'd love to end on? No. <laughs> I, I was going to say, do you want to shout out the Swabby Sisters one more time? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, the Swabby Sisters are world class. <laughs> you know what? Look, the way this tournament's going, I, I, I can't disagree. They, they've shown they are world class. And you know what? Optus, Paramount, someone, please get some more domestic women's leagues on your platforms because after this tournament, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be invested, not just in WSL, but in the um, Div 1 Feminine in France, in the La Liga Feminine in Spain. I don't know if that's the actual term for it. I do apologize. The um, Frauen Bundesliga in Germany, as much as Germany went out early, I want to watch more of Alex Pop. So someone get on it. That's that's all from me today. Make sure you're following Front Page Football at our socials. That is Front PG Football on Twitter, Front Page Football on Instagram. We're on TikTok, uh, Twitter, Threads, just about any other social media platform that you can think of. I can't think of them all off the top of my head as well. LinkedIn, that's the one I forgot. I knew I was missing something important. But I've been Cody Ojeda. If you've enjoyed my hosting, make sure you let Christian Marchetti know after his um sly dig at me on the um Nikolai Topper Stanley pod. Be sure to check out our other pods as well. We had a really good one with Mitch Duke go up yesterday. Um, That is all I have to say from me today. Hope you've all enjoyed it, and we will see you in the next one.